Welcome back to Behold the Lion. This is the second episode in our new series on contemporary civilization. And last week we talked about Plato's Republic. I'm joined again by Silas and by Madeline, who are here today. Say hi, guys. You can Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hey. And we're also joined by Natalia, who has been on this podcast before, but she was away all of uh, last spring. Uh, do you want to say a little bit about where you were and what you were up to? Hi, I'm Natalia. Um, I joined the what was originally the Good Fight podcast, um, now the Behold the Lion podcast. My sophomore year um, was a producer half of my junior year, and I studied abroad in Spain. So I was out partying in Europe while y'all were just finishing the creeds. So, <laughs> well, uh, hopefully you had a fun time out there. <laughs> we were we were we were recording about theology, as you know, which is probably more fun than, than mm. Europe. Um, no, but uh, as we all know, <laughs> as we all know, yes, but. Uh, we're back today, and today uh, we'll be discussing, uh, when you discuss Plato, often you'll pair him with his uh, student, and in some ways his successor, but not quite, Aristotle. Um, Aristotle has left us some writings as well, but they're a little bit uh, different in style than, uh, than, than Plato's writings. Uh, does anyone want to say something on that? Um, so, uh, pl a lot of Plato's um, works are written about Socrates and their dialogues. And so all of them are written as conversations, and that leaves scholars with a lot of room to speculate what Plato and Socrates actually believed. Mm -hmm. And I believe other writings also talked about Aristotle's um, dialogues being even more beautiful than Plato's, mm -hmm. but unfortunately we don't have any of them. Yeah. So what we do have is it's like they're lecture notes almost, mm -hmm. and... There's politics and Nicomachean ethics, and I'm mm -hmm. not sure what other works he has. Mm -hmm. um, politics, Nicomachean ethics, you'll hear about his poetics. A lot of his works are lost. He did a lot of work in natural history as well. But uh, you're right to say that a lot of these works are, as far as we can tell, they're basically notes on lectures he might have given. They're not polished works in the same way that, say, the dialogues, that the dialogues were. What does this do in terms of reading experience? What, what were your respective uh, experiences, you know, trying to get into Plato's Republic versus trying to get into, say, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics? Um, I guess I'll go first. I really liked uh, Aristotle compared to Plato because a lot of the Platonic, the Platonic dialogue, it's very much, you feel like you have to follow the entire train and like everything builds on each other. But with Nicomachean Ethics, you can take little portions, I think, a little bit clearer because he this, the topics aren't so interconnected. And so you can read about his thoughts on moral virtue or his thoughts on friendship. And the, everything's related, but it's not, because of the structure of the text, it's not quite as, I guess, convoluted or it's not quite as intertwined. And that made it easier to digest, even though the words themselves are probably a little bit more dense. Other thoughts on the different, I don't know, uh, I guess another way to phrase the question or, or something to think about, to chew on. Plato can be hard to get a handle on, uh, as you pointed out, uh, Madeline. He's not just, I mean, when you think of Plato, you might think of theories of the forms and everything like that. But his later dialogues seem to indicate a sort of shift in some of his beliefs sometimes and whether he maintains the same theories throughout, even in the Republic, you know, beginning with, you know, a, con a condemnation of a lot of myths and talking about how in the ideal city we would not have so much reference to poetry and myth and then ending with like this very bizarre myth about souls being reborn it's it can be hard to pin down what exactly is going on uh whereas aristotle for what we have left of him is is a bit more straightforward what do you think silas yeah yeah so aristotle as a whole does approach his works from a much more systematic perspective um a lot of the variety in his different writings is essentially trading a subject um, like politics or ethics and giving a more or less systematic overview of his beliefs and a collection of knowledge about that from the world he was in at the time. And so when approaching um, Plato, you generally have to work your way through all the different sides of his logic in a different way. With Aristotle, he very much tells you what he thinks. Um, he gives his reasoning behind that, and that logic is very straightforward and easy to follow. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you aren't really left questioning what he's saying or what he thinks. And it does, in some ways, make it seemingly more applicable, maybe. Like, we can come away knowing what Aristotle is trying to get across in a way that's a little bit harder with Plato, where he's drawing in all of these different ideas. 
Yeah, yeah. I think you're right to point to a categorizing instinct uh, in a lot of Aristotle's writings. Again, he doesn't confine himself to what we might think of as philosophical questions. Actually, for the longest time, uh, in uh, historically speaking, at least in, in the Western world, uh, science was referred, what we would call science was referred to as natural philosophy. Uh, it was considered uh, part of the philosophical endeavor to observe the natural world, to speculate. Aristotle does not only have you know ethics and metaphysics, but also has physics, right? And his theory of how uh, objects you know interacted with each other, um, what we would call matter and energy, uh, dominated for a long time a lot of thinking on those topics. Um, a lot of these this, these disputes, right, it's cliched at this point to say it because you'll do it in our time and everything, but looking at the school of Athens with Plato and Aristotle in the center, this notion of Plato kind of pointing upward toward transcendentals and Aristotle motioning downward toward the earth, the particular, as opposed to the universal. We'll see whether that's borne out maybe in this discussion, but uh, that's, that's at least the perception uh, of those two, those two thinkers so far. Um, let's get a little bit more into the meat of this, continuing in the vein of contrasting or you know, weighing some differences between Plato and Aristotle, not just in the style of their writings, but also in the, in the content or maybe the philosophical approach they take. Um, any thoughts on differences or similarities there? I can add into this. Um, you know, I don't mean to seem like a, sound like a broken record. We've been repeating like the difference, the differences between the way that like both texts are written. But I would add that there's more of a hmm. I, what's the name of that painting again? I forget what it's called, but it's on like the Litham core, like the core curriculum like website where Plato was pointing upward. Yeah, and that's the school of Athens. The yeah. school of Athens. Yeah, yeah I, I forgot what it was called. Yeah. Um, I think you know my professor had like an analysis of this painting, um, and it in many ways summarizes like the two like ideologies in which like both philosophy like the two um ways that both philosophers thought whereas plato was more interested in like um more divine more philosophical ideas um all throughout his works and aristotle was more concerned with the, like the natural world like pointing he's pointing below and like to the ground with you know with his hands whereas plato points upward like trying to like having different ideas wrestling with these two ways of like conceptualizing truth so yeah, as I said, I think the, that that distinction maybe it's it's popular because it's there's some truth to it, but also I wonder um, if if we might you know question that or at least draw some nuance out of that because again you'll hear that over and over in Lidham and in Artham and so on they'll focus in on that detail, but I wonder if you know as we discuss more of the differences in their methods as well we might at least pull some nuance out of it if it's a true distinction. Uh, how so? And if if there's some more similarities to their method, then we might think how so. Yeah. Admittedly, it is somewhat an oversimplification to say that Aristotle's only concerned with mm. the physical things in the world and Plato's concerned with the more abstract divine ideas because Aristotle, for example, writes a huge amount about justice and morality and ethics, which is largely the same things we are reading about and talking about that Plato says right now. And at the same time, Plato is largely concerned with ideas of what is good, what is justice, mm -hmm. because by what Socrates says um, in the Republic, it's essential to how we know how to live life in a very real way. So it's not necessarily that one's simply concerned with the real world and one's concerned with the bigger questions, but rather the methods by which they approach it um, for example, just the level of just kind of piece up to conclusion logic that Aristotle uses is kind of maybe more based in the physical world rather than this higher idea of the divine Got it. and vice versa. Like they get to the same questions that I feel like they just do it in somewhat different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, I do think, uh, frankly, for Plato, this notion that he's somehow less concerned with the real wouldn't make sense because precisely for him, these uh, forms, at least in his earlier earlier works, are precisely that. They are more real and they give reality to particular things. Uh, Aristotle is a bit less concerned with that kind of reasoning and has a critique, famous critique of Plato's uh, notion of the forms. But uh, maybe to make this more concrete, we can talk about particular, I mean, we talked about the Republic as the particular text of Plato we thought about. 
let's talk about the uh, Aristotle's ethics, the Nicomachean ethics, uh, so named after his son, Nicomachus. I think that's the correct pronunciation. I'm a classics major, so I kind of have to know this kind of thing. But um, <laughs> We defer to your knowledge. Yeah. Uh, but let's talk about that for a second. What's the, cent uh, what's the central question? Okay, so if the central question of the Republic is what is justice, right? What's the central question driving the ethics? How would you how would you phrase that or frame it? I think that justice is certainly spoken upon and touched upon all throughout the Nicomachean ethics. Sorry, we were debating what, how it's pronounced before we were sort of recording. Um, but I think by contrast, this work, um, from what I remember from CC, um, dives a lot more with like how we interact with others in the physical world. Um, rather than like these grand conceptual ideas of justice. And that is, uh, you know, those, those are themes all throughout this book, for for sure. Um, but I think by contrast, you see things like our discussion of friendship um, in the Copenhagen ethics, like how we treat one another. Um, whereas by, by contrast, I don't think that's necessarily a theme that we saw in Players Republic, which, you know, it's been a little while for me. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I see on first yeah. surface level. Okay. Okay. Other thoughts there. Um, I guess another way to, yeah, Madeline, any... Um, well, I think that one thing that I found really interesting about this book was a lot of it has to do with like moral virtue, and then they get into a pretty in-depth discussion of friendship. And I'm tr just trying to find the quote because I'm writing my paper. It's actually due tonight on <laughs> this topic. But just this idea that um, there, there's this idea that he brings up that justice isn't necessary when there's friendship. But it's not because it's not because if you're friends with someone, you don't need things to be just. But if you have an authentic friendship with someone, then that already is based on justice. And so there's like this broader idea that to have a political structure, to have a civilization, it has to it's it's broken down into individual friendships. And that's what brings people together is these these this friendship. So Aristotle is fundamentally concerned with the question of human flourishing when it comes to the ethics or happiness, as it might be translated, this Greek term of eudaimonia, which means, uh, which can be translated variously. Happiness, not in the sense of pleasure, per se, uh, as the um, as the Epicureans might uh, frame the pursuit of human life as being fundamentally the pursuit of pleasure, right? Uh, for the Epicureans, that meant more not like hedonism in an abandoned sense, but uh, more of a pursuit of, you know, the refined pleasures of life and personal enjoyment. For Aristotle, this notion of happiness is more of, um, again, it could be translated flourishing. It could be more translated in, you know, not to, uh, in the modern terms of living your best life in a weird sense of living in line with what you were meant to do. Let's hold on to that for a second. What does Aristotle do with this notion of what you were meant to do? Famous term associated with it. <laughs> I feel like this is hard because yeah. it's hard to distinguish some of these ideas because yeah. they're very similar to like personal beliefs I hold that mm. are usually like more closely informed yeah. with like Paul because like Saint Paul talks about like like there's some that are meant th there's some that are called to be preachers or teachers yeah. or like some that are called to heal and he has all of these different mm. different gifts that people mm. have and like their purpose. And mm -hmm. I think that that's a lot higher than what yeah. Aristotle initially points to because yeah. there's a lot more talk about like slavery or people's like a lot, like their lot in life, mm -hmm. um, which is a lot less like fair than I guess how we see it nowadays. Yeah. yeah and I think to add on to that, like even, you know, we're going to talk about city of God later on, but like even mm -hmm. in city of God, there's like chatter of like, you know, what it means to be like a slave on this earth rather than being a slave to sin. Um, is it like an and Augustine ultimately says that like being a slave to s being a slave of this world like being an, an actual slave um, to an actual person here on like this earthly dimension is much better than being a slave to sin and there's a freedom that can be attained even in that position um, and that was like very very like not well received by my class at all just you know not being a Christian class um, but I think th this whole thing, and it, once again, we'll talk about this later on in City of God in another episode, but I think in reference to what Madeline just brought up and this whole idea of like looking at our roles in society, it's just like how, how on earth can we just, you know, fulfill our own roles, the roles that we have been given, um, whether it's the lowest or the highest, and will that, will that complete the, will that, you know, provide us with the most amount of happiness, but not just for ourselves, but those also around us. So. I think a good kind of, 
summering or tying in of those ideas is along the lines of what Aristotle thinks is the key to human happiness or flourishing is very different than the way we use that term today in that to be happy is not a state of being or an emotional state. It's very much an active way that you live your life, and it's um, fulfilling a certain role and doing a certain thing in the best way possible. And what that looks like specifically is what he breaks down more as he goes. But from the very beginning, what he's trying to say is, how ought a human to live? And if they live that way, that is what it means to be happy, to have this virtue, or mm-hmm. to be in a flourishing state as a human. It's interesting because he doesn't like he makes a very clear connection between like personal happiness or contentment and fulfilling your role and like like basic morality. And I think that that's really interesting because there's very much, especially with our generation, there's very much this there's this feeling that if you live just live <laughs> like what you said, live your best life or this sort of you do you um, this attitude that if you're just doing whatever you want, that's ultimately, like, that's freedom. That's what will bring you happiness. And Aristotle very much doesn't agree with that, I'd say. He really does think that if you are, you have to be following or seeking the good to achieve happiness or fulfillment in a lot of ways. Yeah, fulfillment and goal, right? Uh, the, the Greek term for that is telos, uh, which means uh from which we get teleology right uh this this whole notion of trying to define the purpose of a thing by looking for its end and goal what its highest purpose is um and the the interesting thing is and here is where i would draw a distinction between aristotle and plato to an extent uh where for plato the good is this thing almost out there right he uses the allegory of the cave to say we need to do this ascent where we learn to look at the good and then everything else flows from the good um that's that's fair for for aristotle the good that we ought to pursue is in a sense this kind of eudaimonia itself this happiness itself um where you know that's the in a sense the the what a human is meant to aspire to is that kind of a flourishing as silas said an active life more so than um a contemplative one again not to draw the dichotomy of action and contemplation representing Aristotle and Plato respectively because as you've seen Plato's philosopher king does not just stay looking up at the sun he comes back into the cave and tries to he's very much engaged in that in that life but it's 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 a sort of different uh basically different approach what do you think of this notion that humans should pursue happiness uh eudaimonia whether uh, to take it as meaning flourishing what do you think that is a human's end goal I would say yes for sure, whether sure. what people want to admit it or not, yeah. And right. one way or another, like we make decisions that we want to make for our own happiness, for the happiness of others, um, that's, or its own satisfaction. That's that's a descriptive statement, right? Mm-hmm. We do do this. Do you yes. think we should do this? Should the I think the big difference that comes in as far as personal belief, taking this from a Christian point of view, is saying that this idea of happiness of this living with virtue of flourishing um, is something that is pointed towards a certain end. It has a certain telos. And the big difference in between reading this as a Christian versus non-Christian is what is that end to which you're pointed? Mm -hmm. And so if happiness is living in a way that best achieves this end, then yes, we should, and that end is in and of itself the thing that we ought to be pursuing, then of course the goal for how we live our life ought to fulfill that happiness, be a picture of that human flourishing that leads us to that telos. So if, for example, we say that telos from a Christian perspective is as humans to glorify God, if we say that purpose is to serve him and follow him, and then we say, okay, how I live my life in accords with that to best do that is the way that I also live. That is how I, I as a human flourish. Then you can totally put this idea into a Christian framework and have it work quite well as many people have done. Yeah. I think that the biggest challenge here is just how happiness is defined. And this is something that, um, that Aristotle says later is that man 
want like sometimes we want the good he there's this distinction made between like wanting the good and wanting the good that like wanting what's actually good for us and like the really obvious example of this is like exercise or diets because it's not always what's pleasurable in the moment but it'll mm -hmm. have the best long-term results yeah and i guess that's why like um i guess that's why we see those same parallels in the new testament um is like with a life of faith it's also about um our personal growth and like it is it is supposed to be a struggle right i think these two notions of yeah, uh, the Platonic notion almost of contemplating the good first, right? The highest good. And then the Aristotelian notion of finding one's flourishing, finding happiness in that life. They do tend to get combined within the Christian tradition uh, quite explicitly sometimes. Protestants often refer back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, whose first question is, what is the chief end of man, borrowing a lot of these uh borrowing arguably Aristotelian terminology there, but the answer is to glorify God. That could be contemplation. That could be focusing on the highest good and to enjoy him forever. Um, and there's this notion, uh, the, the pastor John Piper likes to say, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There's this notion that, uh, drawing from other thinkers like Pascal, that a lot of, like, as Natalia said, the fact that humans seek happiness is essentially inevitable. Pascal says something to the effect of, we all seek happiness, even the man who hangs himself. Mm -hmm. um, and the question is, where are we seeking it? Who will actually bring us that fulfillment? And when we realize that it is in God, and a lot of Christian thinkers early on, we'll see this in Augustine, will start to say that, hey, this platonic notion of this highest good from which all else flows and which holds all reality in existence, um, that's who God is, right? Um, then that, that kind of lets us fit some of these ideas together, I would argue. I think yeah. to also add to that, like, to add on to, like, what Silas and Madeline had added about, mm -hmm. you know, it's so interesting to look at this from a Christian point of view because, you know, like, especially, like, um, in the Gospels, just the entire paradox of in order to gain eternal life, we have to die first. So, like, I hosted a reading group on your Christianity this summer. So I'm going to read the... awesome. Thank you, Madeline. <laughs> I love you. Um, but I'll be reading the last... I just pulled up the last line of mere Christianity, which is my favorite line in the entire book. Um, so that's okay. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. I think in this line, it's... It really, really shows like the paradox of our faith mm -hmm. that in order for us to like truly be, like had this like what's the word again? The Greek word? Uh, the eudaimonia. Eudaimonia. Yeah. <laughs> like we have to also just die and suffer as Christ suffered as well. Right. And so it's so fascinating, just like as a Christian, like this is so backwards and confusing to that of a non-believer because of course, like we want like yeah. happiness and we want it now. We want it to be like instantaneous right. and like at the moment but the christian life instead calls like no as christ suffered we will also suffer and we will gain eternal life and we'll be made perfect as he is perfect and so yeah like edunomia would be would constitute within that a level of perfection as christ is perfect as well at least that's what i would say right if you want to look for an example of this look no further than christ himself hebrews 12 verse 2 who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame Think about that for a second. If you look at someone who's crucified, you don't think, wow, he's living his best life right now. But <laughs> at the same time, in a sense, he's fulfilling, Christ fulfilled the calling that God gave him. He did this for the joy set before him. Uh, in a sense, there is no joy uh, equal to that of doing God's will. And there probably wasn't a felt joy in that moment. But uh, um, there's a lot to do with, um, uh, within the Christian framework, there's a lot more room, I think, to... Uh, see how these concepts play out. Yeah. yeah, and I think if we were to pull back the um, work of Plato, just the uh, concept that Socrates says in the Republic of a just man would continue to be just even when faced with injustice because living that just life, that ideal life, is in and of itself its own reward, even if it doesn't have physical payoff. If we were to combine that concept with Aristotle and what we're talking about, the overall message of what that end goal, that end telos that we're pursuing is, um, and to say, okay, my end goal is to continue to follow Christ and to glorify him in my life. And the best way I do that is what will 
give me this idea of happiness, this idea of flourishing as a human, mm-hmm. even if that means suffering for mm-hmm. Christ. Mm-hmm. And that can look like being that just man that Socrates mentions who doesn't receive any physical rewards for it, but he's still living a flourishing life that's rewarding in and of itself. And it's kind of hard because you pull in a lot of weird ideas mm-hmm. from both Aristotle and Socrates, uh, I think all of Plato's writings, of you measure how happy or how flourishing a man's life was after he died. Yeah. In that how well he pursued that in. And so it doesn't necessarily even have to be a mm-hmm. good payoff as mm-hmm. much as it is a he continued to pursue that in and flourish as a human as a result. I like that. I like that you brought that up. Aristotle does tackle that question of can we call the dead happy in a flourishing sense? How do we, at what point can we judge someone's life as well? There's a saying I like to quote that uh, it goes along the lines of, you know, don't judge a man by his exceptional actions, but by his habitual ones, right? Um, which, you know, uh, can people can have their moments of heroism, and those are great too. But oftentimes what really defines the course of someone's life is more so those actions that often go unseen uh, and those actions that uh, are, you know, habitual, maybe not rewarded, but uh, um, can set the course of one's life. For Aristotle, virtue is very much something that can be learned, something that can be practiced, a habit. Same with vice, essentially, that... Uh, um, and he speaks about this a little bit, that at some point you might get so accustomed to a bad habit that you start to lose control over yourself as well. What do you think, well, first of this notion of uh, virtue as something that's learned, something habitual, something that's practiced? Let's start with that question, actually. I have another one, but uh, first, any thoughts on that? There's definitely a truth to it. I, I would say certainly, like, even, like, once again, quoting back to my Christianity that's still fresh in my head from the summer, some people are inclined to certain virtues more than others, and others are inclined to certain sins more than others. And so in, you know, let's say for whatever reason, I'm just not a charitable person. In making myself and having discipline to, you know, donate money here, donate more of my time here, it in many ways shapes me to become a better, I guess, proprietor of that virtue. Same, like on the converse side as well, like you, you know, whatever you feed grows you know, any sin or any vice or anything that's grave that I continually partake in will grow and overtake me. And mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the habitual um, is much more reflective of one's character than what we do exceptionally. So, yeah, I definitely think there's definitely a truth to it. I think that the way that it translates itself into every single person is going to look different because, once again, everyone has um, inclinations towards certain vices and certain virtues. I think on top of that, if we're working with this definition of virtue, it's really hard to imagine it as anything except a habit or way of living. It's this idea of human flourishing as in living in a way Mm -hmm. that is pointed towards that end Mm -hmm. as best as possible. It's you can't live in a certain way and flourish as a human in your one-off achievements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The idea of flourishing is it's, it's this active living state it's not a checklist that you've accomplished mm-hmm. at the end of your life. It's not the things that we, in the way we think about our society, put on like our gravestones. Um, it's the way that you live, and if it was pointed towards the correct end. And if, you, yeah, and so it's hard to imagine living a life that's flourishing in the right direction if it's not a habitual way of life. That's good. Uh, I think we'll come back to this question of um, habit of, you know, what does it mean to be living in a particular direction, even if not all your actions are perfectly tending toward that direction and and vice versa. But I want to tackle this, too, from another angle um, that that might be living, you know, a virtuous life is to tend toward this goal of flourishing, of happiness. But on the practical level, too, something another very famous concept from Aristotle. uh, Well, Let's see, uh, do you guys, what, what, how does he effectively define virtue in, in, in a particular situation? How would he take, say, how would he define courage, for instance? Um, what's one way of thinking about it? Um, so when he talks about the specifics of individual virtues mm-hmm. um, that a person has in their life, and this is somewhat aiming at virtue from a slightly different mm-hmm. way. It's more of the granular take on it of mm-hmm. specific ways of living that are counted as virtue something like courage 
Um, he talks about it as a certain quantity of a certain trait that can either be um, bad in either if it's too deficient or there's too much of it. So I believe when he talks about courage specifically, he's saying if you have too little of this vague idea of courage, you're a coward. If you have too much, then you're rash, you're brazen. Um, and there's some spot in the middle there where it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So every virtue is some mean in between two extremes. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's often called the golden mean. Right. Um, or it's been coined along on that lines of mm-hmm. too much or too little of anything's not good. But there's a sweet spot somewhere in yeah. the middle. Yeah. And I say somewhere specifically because it's not exactly in the middle for everything. Yeah. He very specifically says maybe for the average person having a little bit on the high end of courage is probably better than on the low end. But there could be other virtues where it's better to have a little bit less of it. And that's that sweet spot, that golden mean. Yeah. yeah. There's also other – he also makes a couple exceptions, like specific vices, mm-hmm. where he's like adultery, for example. Mm-hmm. He's like, there's no mean in that. He's yeah. like, that's bad. And I think that in like more – to take this more from a Christian perspective, we would see that as um, – we would see we would say that like the three theological virtues are the ones that you can't – like faith, hope, and love are the ones that you can't have too much of. But yeah. I think otherwise, the Christian framework would borrow a lot from that. That's good. Yeah. Uh, this notion, again, courage being the mi- midway point between cowardice and, you know, braided brashness, um, uh, good humoredness being between frivolity and being like grave all the time. Uh, he plays a lot with this idea. It's been very influential. Madeline, you're right to say Christianity can borrow. It did borrow a lot from it. We'll get to Aquinas later in the, in the uh, CC curriculum, but uh, Aquinas was almost perhaps arguably single-handedly responsible for bringing the Aristotelian framework into a world of Christian thought that had, to that point, uh, often been dominated by Platonic, uh, Platonic-tinged thinking. So we'll get to that. Um, do you guys think this notion of the golden mean makes sense, like practically speaking, or uh, is it just sort of an, I- an idea out there? So when you read it, it makes a lot of sense, and I do think there's a lot of truth to it, I don't know how much you can say this is the way it works. It's a mental model of trying to understand human behavior and the way the world works. And um, like most good mental models, it just makes sense when you hear it. Um, I can't really give you an answer in which I, at least off the top of my head, where I systematically break down the reason of this and if it's good or bad. He just kind of says it. And it just kind of makes sense, and so we go with it. Um, I don't know. Did any of you have like a specific like criticism, a certain way that you like think you can logically say this is a really good way? I mean, uh, there's practicality to it, certainly. But I think I would agree with you. I think that on paper it seems incredibly like sound and rational, but I think the way that it's put out in practice by people, it's, it looks quite different. Although I don't have any specific examples, I just I, it's like my instinct here. I guess one way I could suggest we think about it, and this is not to like test the mental model so much as uh, sort of an implication of this model. Um, I read this article, uh, kind of more just a thought-provoking thing, where the author was saying, you know, if we go along this line of seeing particular strengths along, I mean, a spectrum where they can be vices, but they can also be virtues, this means two things it means sometimes that when we are evaluating ourselves and we see our strengths we might want to know that we could be prone to the uh relevant weakness if that makes sense um similarly if you have look at look around at someone and you realize that they're uh and there's something about them that annoys you some trait about them that you don't like you could think about that for a second and wonder if that translates into a relevant strength as well. Sometimes our um, greatest strengths are also uh, manifest as our weaknesses. I'm trying to think of a good example of that. Um, I don't know. Sometimes it's the people who are most you know, purpose-driven and best at getting things done who are not very good at making time for people and uh, you know, being you know, warm. Sometimes the people who are you know, most warm, have the most time for people, can seem flaky sometimes or not to be able to uh, get things done in such a, such a way. So realizing that with each uh, 
virtue, you know, this Aristotelian model of thinking of something in a different situation might look different can can help in how we think about relating to others. Could that just be like, I'm sorry, Silas, I know you want to say something, but like, I guess like, look, go, you know, bringing it back to a Christian context once yeah. again, like that could just be like a mem- like the reality, just like the general body of Christ. Like some people are going to be ha- like have these higher virtues um, that make them more hospitable and make them more like inclined to like this ministry or that ministry. Well, others are going to have like riches in the opposite direction that make them more inclined to like join this or that or that. Like, I think that could be pointed to like the diversity and like our goodness, like I just like as a members of the body of Christ. But of course, like, I, I don't know, like that's, that can be one way of looking at it, but yeah, I think to connect those two ideas, um, the thing with this model is that, like you were saying, it's somewhat apparent how useful it is for thinking about the way that people work. It's very clear that someone who, to use the idea of like cowardice, is more reserved or has this degree of maybe like we call fear or cowardice, is also the person who's most likely to think things through and be cautious in a healthy way if they can overcome the unhealthy level of that concern that they may have. Um, so it is definitely like useful. I guess my one thing where I would come in to criticize it, like I said before, is just that I can't really give you a, off the top of my head at least, give you a logical reason for it outside of the practical application of it where it seems to work well. So within like the frame of just like logic itself, it's hard to build this up as well, but it is definitely extremely useful. And I think that's why it's both popular to talk about and uh, we see the like glints of truth in there very clearly. And I think uh, based off what uh, Natalia was saying, the differences in people and the way that they have their own relative strengths and weaknesses is the way that we as a community can come together and share those strengths and weakness, which just kind of gets into politics. Yeah, and why I was going to say that. It goes uh, into politics. Community, why a body politic, why a city is important. But that's we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves if we go there. Yeah. I had a mentor once who observed to me that uh, when we come to Christ, in some ways he pulls us closer to a mean. That doesn't mean he erases our individuality at all. But if you are you know, more introverted and you tend to be uh, shy, perhaps inordinately so, then uh, as you grow in your walk with Christ, you will be called to come out of that and tend more toward, uh, you know, uh, reaching out to others and so on. If you're, if you tend to be the opposite, right, and be very outgoing, sometimes to the point of not uh, thinking everything through, you will be called to um, you know, uh, restrain that in some direction too. Again, that doesn't mean everyone gets like smoothed out into like this kind of a you know, distinctionless mass of yeah. everyone in the middle. But uh, there is a sense in which as we walk, uh, grow spiritually, um, we will have to uh, approach this sort of a mean in a sense. Yeah. There's this awesome quote by... Um, uh, someone who was recently beatified in the Catholic Church. Um, he died at the age of 15. But one of his one of his quotes, he loved computers, but one of his quotes was that um, we're all born as originals, but so many of us die as photocopies. And I think that when people are not around the, the Christian life, they can see it as very limiting. And I think that it's precisely the opposite, where the closer we get to Christ... Um, not only will we get closer to each other and closer to true friendship, but we'll also find who we are um, and who we were created to be because the person who knows us more than we know ourselves is God. And I think that that's a beautiful reality. Good, good. So we're touching on some notes of community here, and that's a good segue, I think, to talk about one last topic that I think is very big in uh in, in the ethics that a lot of people um, talk about when they talk about this text, and that's Aristotle's notion of friendship. Any thoughts on that? I mean, the thing that comes to mind for me is, first of all, that he does see different levels of friendship uh, existing. Um, what are those, and what's the best kind of friendship in his view? How do we get there? Thoughts on that? So I remember, I do remember these because this is my thesis statement that I'm trying to rework right now, but he divides the categories into utility, pleasure, and character. And the, I guess the quick summary of each would be friendship for utility is like 
friendships in a workplace environment and those aren't necessarily bad but they're friendships because you're both trying to accomplish something together and then friendships of pleasure are relationships where you you both like get something out of the friendship whether it's part of being in a friend group or you guys just enjoy each other's company but the highest form of friendship is one that is based on character and a much deeper moral there's a much deeper moral connection where you and this other person are both desiring the good and each other's good and you're both chasing after that together yeah, thoughts on that? Is it is it cool to say that a bunch of people are friends of utility to you if you're in like a workplace like that? Or to is it to acknowledge that with some people you relate more towards certain ends that not it's not with all people that in our culture, it's common to say, you know, to, to, to gush a lot. Let's just put it that way to say I love this or that or. Um, to, to like to think to have a very wide circle of friends. And some people do have more friends than others, but what do you think of this sort of categorization, is this uh, this way of thinking? You don't strike me as a person that gushes a lot, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that's why I'm here on this podcast ranting about the gushiness. Of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's an accurate hierarchy. Like I think in like as somebody who's very, very extroverted, I think this hierarchy actually like hits the nail on like yeah. how I would define the majority of my friends um, or people I would consider to be my friends. Um, if you're Natalia's friend, <laughs> <laughs> just know that I love you I'm and crushed. Jesus, lo- Jesus loves you, he, and I will. You're good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that there's certainly a surface level, um, like an el- like an element of superficiality when you know I'm talking to my coworker. Versus when I'm talking to like somebody with whom I genuinely mm-hmm. like seek the moral good, and usually those friends are almost always Christian. Um, there maybe has been like one exception, um, but yeah, I think it's a useful one. C.S. Lewis, I keep mentioning him because I've read I read like five of his books. He this never summer. gets mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wrote another book called yeah. The Four Loves, mm-hmm. um, and literally like all, like the four loves are like utility. Um, the one in the middle, what was it again? Like the pleasure. The pleasure, the highest form, and then like Eros, which we can we can talk about later. Um, and like he mentioned for like one of his most famous quotes from that book was friendship is born at the moment one friend says to another friend, Ah, oh, me too like you too? I thought I was the only one. So I think that like as like you grow in like getting to know a person, those little like I don't want to say sparks, it sounds like too like Disney like. Too um, gushy. Too gushy, yes. It's <laughs> <That's> very bad. <laughs> <laughs> Come out, and then you see, like, not only, like, you don't just see, um, like, this person who just gives you pleasure. You also see, like, a version of yourself in this person as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think mm-hmm. one of the Aristotelian definitions of the friend is effectively another self, right? This, this sort of, uh, there's this degree of identification with this other person that... Uh, um, is uh, this would be one of the this would be the friendships of character the higher friendships organized around a shared conception of of the good um other thoughts or reactions to this notion of of friendship any particular one of them or the highest one i think something that really struck me about this whole passage was recent in recent years especially with like the advent of the tv and then the advent of the smartphone. The TV was a bit not so recent. <laughs> <laughs> the advent of the TV with our grandparents' generation okay. and the advent of the smartphone in our generation. Madeline was homeschooled. year <laughs> <laughs> was also homeschooled. Okay. <laughs> These have led to a rather an epidemic of loneliness and depression. And we keep hearing about these as constant themes that are coming from like our increased digital age, everything has gotten easier and easier. And like as a society, we have gotten wealthier and wealthier and able to afford more and more pleasures. And people are less and less happy. And I think that a lot of that has to do with authentic, I think a lot of it has to do with God and um, faith. But I think a lot of it also has to do with authentic human connection. And having a thousand Instagram followers doesn't compensate for not having authentic friendship in your life this should not dissuade you who are listening from following us on instagram we're the good we're behold the lion <laughs> but um yeah um that's that's a good point this this idea that though we are in some ways more connected than ever before in other ways we're really not yeah. and uh yeah this this notion 
what I like about this notion of friendship as oriented around a shared vision of the good too is it gives you grounds for um because you're both looking at the same vision uh it gives you grounds for what in the Christian uh context we would call exhortation and rebuke as well right because if you see someone f a good friend falling short of the good because you both value or you have the same values right that that's when you can step in and it would be a gesture of love not of um you know condemnation but to say that's not what you value i know you that's not what you want to be right and redirect them as well and that can be uh helpful to to both friends in that case but I think that something that is like a personal example for me was when I first got on campus and with INSOP, which I was the first class that got to have a real INSOP after COVID, but like my INSOP friend group, like it was fun for a couple days while we had activities and we ended up doing a canoeing trip upstate and that was a lot of fun, but those, those sorts of friendships can be very utilitarian or artificial. And I definitely found much more authentic friendship here at Christian Union and with people that really did share my faith. And I think that it, it was hard to, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this at the time, but I think it was finding people who authentically cared about me. And um, that's really such a blessing that I think we have in our faith because you have this problem in friendship where oftentimes one person is giving and the other person is just is just taking all that um but with with god he is always giving to us and so i think that when you cling to him he he has enough to give to all of us and i mm -hmm. think that that allows friendships to blossom even more so mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and that can be a really beautiful thing i think that even tying that back into aristotle <laughs> um <laughs> Thanks, Silas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Seems like he has thoughts, but... Yeah. Um, no, so even tying that back into the idea of Aristotle, just that the fact that you could come to um, a space where people sharing these same values is a phrase that everyone gets, likes to throw around. But I think the reason behind that is because you are both pursuing the same thing. Everyone knows the core of the thing that everyone else is after and wants. And because of that, as friends and as people pursuing that same end, you can have that same like highest form of friendship that we were talking about that requires not just a utility in each other, but a common concern and understanding of each other's well-being. In that I know to a large degree what someone else here wants and what their conception of their well-being is because we're both pursuing the same thing and um yeah not to negate like we have different opinions about things different ways to gain there but if i know what someone else wants and it's the same thing i want it's very easy for me to say oh how can i help how can i contribute how can we go in the same direction together mm -hmm. um because if it's just friends of utility there's like a small way in this very like physical sense that you're both going in the same direction you both need something and so you make this alliance and it's mm -hmm. fine um but it's different when this sense of you're both going in the same direction eternally we're both going in the same direction with the overall telos of your lives mm -hmm. that's where it gets fundamentally different and that's why i think there's a difference between these friends of utility and these like highest form of friendship is that you're either way you're in some way going in the same direction. This sounds like marriage. Like, could this be like, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I'd say could like that make marriage, marriage the, the highest form of friendship. I mean, I'd say, yeah. I mean, marriage is even more so than any of this. Cause you're literally doing every piece of your life together. Like a good Christian community, any good community should be doing life together. But I mean, I feel like marriage is probably the most full version of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously. Mm -hmm. We're all speaking from experience. On this <laughs> topic, <so. laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's a good point. And this sort of, yeah, I think that's, that's a good point also about being oriented in the same direction, not only for time, but into eternity is, uh, you know, kind of a carryover of that, uh, or a good way, rather, of putting together the notion of the Christian walk with this notion of friendship that I think is 
you know, very effective, a very effective one in some in some ways, and something worth worth cultivating. Um, this might be C.S. Lewis as well from from the Four Loves, but uh, where he basically says that also to be, uh, you know, nobody, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's kind of harsh to say, but, you know, nobody likes the person who goes around saying, I just want friends, you know, that's all I want, right? And doesn't have any particular interests, something to make them interesting in a sense. Not that it's, right, it's it's a question of um, if friends are going to be oriented toward a similar goal, then they need to, you need to have a goal, right? You need to be moving towards something. Now, the interesting thing is with for Christians is that within the body of Christ, there's people who are interested in a lot of different things, lots of different personalities and so on, but they all have also this love for Christ to unite them. And that can bring people together uh, who would otherwise not typically be found together. Yeah. So this is why artists share is learning Latin and Greek. Is that why other people will find him interesting? Uh, <laughs> 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 it hasn't worked so far, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, but we're working on it. We find him interesting for other reasons too. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah. Um, any I think I, yeah. Go uh, ahead. To add, to like close, I think like I will conclude with one last um, idea I learned from C.S. Lewis, which is um, in becoming. You know, Madeline mentioned this. Like, in becoming our true original selves, we have to forego the idea of originality. Like we have to forego the idea of. You know, if we want to be the smartest person in the room, we have to forego the idea of just wanting to be that. We just have to just be. And so I think in this discussion of friendship, I think one way to look at it is rather than look at it from a standpoint of like, I want friends, you can instead try and like be that, like be that friend, like be that friendliest person, like be like what exactly you want to be rather than just waiting for it to come to you. And so there's a so sort of like coming out of yourself that I think ties back to this idea of like, eternal satisfaction and adumonia like in order for us to like truly be our true selves we have to just come out of ourselves and instead be what we can like be the best that we can to those around us in our community there's a lot to tie with that and a lot to tie there and my instinct is to try and tie it to some elements that also show up in uh, Taoist philosophy but that's kind of across the world and across time a little bit from what we'll get to it would be interesting, Columbia, I just want to pitch this to anyone who's listening who has time in their Columbia career. Columbia has these great classes, the Colloquium on Major Texts of East Asia and the Colloquium on Major Texts of the Middle East and South Asia. They were designed to be like lit hum for those respective cultures. So you get a really uh, kind of uh, lit hum style overview of a lot of the major texts of these cultures. Uh, this is my uh, last year here, so the whole the line will not in my time be going through the curricula of those classes. <laughs> but if, you know, in the future, that would be an interesting conversation to have. How does Christianity relate to those respective traditions? That's a little away from Aristotle, but uh, yeah, any, any final thoughts for uh, on Aristotle for today? Or if not, uh, thank you guys. This has been a good conversation, a good refresher, hopefully, for, for everyone involved. Um, and thank you, uh, everyone who listened. Uh, we'll be back again next week, and we'll be moving on through the uh, CC curriculum. Thanks again. Thanks. Thanks.